This is Dialogue with Drake and Dabu. My name is Emma Drake. And I am Sweta Dabu. This is the podcast where we talk about all things policy, politics, and pop culture. Our topic for the day is the 2021-22 PEI Provincial Budget. As the spring legislative sitting was a little bit earlier this year, the new budget was presented earlier than usual as well on March 12, 2021. Under the new schedule of the Legislative Assembly, this past week has been a planning slash break week for MLAs, which means the Legislative Assembly hasn't been meeting. Therefore, there hasn't been any substantial debate on the budget as of yet. There are, however, a few highlights we can look at when talking about these budget, and these include investments into clean technology, childcare, health, and tourism, as well as changes to taxes provincially. This week, the Legislative Assembly will reconvene and will debate the proposed budget. In preparation for this debate, today we have with us a very special guest who is very informed on all matters PEI politics. Our special guest is a fan of the Justice League and local hot sauce. He is the political reporter for the newspaper that covers the island like the do, also known as The Guardian. Welcome, Stu Neepy. Well, Stu, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, our first official question for you is, how are you? I'm great. Uh, we're recording this on Thursday, so the Snyder Cut of Justice League is about to come out within hours, and it's going to be a monstrosity. It's going to be four hours long. I'm sure it's going to be horrible, but I'm here for it. So <laughs> that, that is the most important thing in my life right now. <laughs> I've seen the trailers. It looks, it looks like something, certainly. It's a lot of slow motion. It's going to be really long. It's going to be great. <laughs> I feel like that was the most like prepared and articulate answer to how I are have you? been waiting for this movie for a while. <laughs> it's just such a like, like the budget is, is probably about the budget of health PEIs. And it's just wow. such a terrible use of resources during COVID. So I've, I've spent uh, like probably unhealthy amount of uh, time following the ins and outs of the Snyderverse uh, mm. drama. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I'm not familiar with it, and I'm sure listeners would love to know, what is this film? And Sweat is laughing at me because she's in front of me. <laughs> so, uh, what is it, 2017? Uh, there's like a big budget uh, film version of the Justice League, the legendary collection of DC uh, comic book characters. Uh, but... Um, there's like a tragedy in the middle of it. Like one of the directors, Zack Snyder is like, like, you know, it's a terrible tragedy. Like, like I think he has a family member who sort of dies in the middle of the filming. So he can't complete the actual filming of it. Mm -hmm. So I think it's taken over by Joss, Joss Whedon. And it just gets universally panned by no. critics. Like it's, it's just, it, it's not met with a very uh, positive reception. And so you know, COVID hits and, uh, you know, the film studios are like, how do we create content now? We can't actually get actors in the same space. So so one of the things that comes out of this COVID period is that they throw 30 million extra dollars at Zack Snyder because an internet movement of comic book bros, I guess you could call them, sort of develops, uh, who for years demand that, they're, that they're, there actually be a release of a Snyder cut of Justice League, which probably never existed. There was probably never an alternate cut of this movie. And so instead, mm -hmm. there, there's this $30 million production, which um, is landing today. Um, so yeah, that's mm. the story. That's all of it. 
So it's been four years in the making. This is this is an exciting day then. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's going to be an entertainment monstrosity. I can't wait. Very cool. Well, we'll follow up with you for further comment. Uh, that way, when the I'll be live release... tweeting the whole thing. Yeah. Okay. Well, fabulous. <laughs> That's great. Gonna shift gears a little bit. Kind mm -hmm. of a big deal happened last week. So on Friday, provincial budget drop. So first question pertaining to that, what are a couple highlights and things that stand out for you? Um, so this is, um, this is kind of an interesting budget, I thought, just because it's sort of coming before the what's likely to be a, the massive federal budget out of Ottawa, which mm. people sort of speculate might be kind of a, an election budget or pre-election budget. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I mean, like, you know, we're in a province where probably well over the well over half the money in one of these things comes from transfer payments. So there's a good deal of uncertainty as to like what's going to be in that budget. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, so I mean, there's sort of that element to it. Um, there's there is a deficit. I kind of had to put that in a headline, I guess, when in writing about it, but I don't actually think it's that important. So there's a hundred. $12 million deficit, mm. um, which will, in the next three years, they project will probably shrink down to about 27 million. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess the the sort of other element to it is that it's, it's, it's sort of was at first sort of sold as kind of a, a restart budget, you know, sort yeah. of the first stages of a recovery from COVID. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, uh, Personally, if it were any other year, like if it had even just been last year, the first year, uh, I think you would have had a lot of praise, I think, like last year's budget during COVID got a lot of praise from like anti-poverty activists and, and nonprofits and stuff. Mm -hmm. But I think we're in a bit, bit of a different time right now and kind of people's expectations of government are quite a bit higher. higher. Like people really yeah. expect there to be kind of an activist government, you know, people mm -hmm. expect governments to, you know, kind of really respond to some of the social inequalities that have come out of the COVID period. So I'm not sure if it quite, uh, you know, will be met with the same level of, uh, I guess, approval as the one, you know, like last May was. Um, mm. But yeah, so those those are the main things, I guess. Uh, I suppose we could get into the weeds a little bit as we go on. Mm -hmm. And, and you've kind of mentioned a little bit that this budget came at a time of uncertainty, looking at the fact that the federal budget hasn't been released yet, but also that this is, I think, only the second budget to be released before the end of the current fiscal year. And there has been quite a bit of discussion about whether or not it was right that this budget was coming out while the current fiscal year was still ongoing. Looking at the content of the budget and the way that you know everything has been laid out in it, do you think whether or not the fiscal year is over is even a concern? I think this this is the first one uh, for the Tories that it's uh, that's in the fiscal year or before the end of the fiscal year, right? Because like like the one after the election was like uh, well into the summer last year was back in June, so I think this is the first one that's sort of before mm -hmm. end of fiscal year. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I I again I'm not an economist and I don't have an accounting degree, but. I gather that like you probably want to have a budget that comes out before the end of fiscal year than after. I, I think in the last, the first budget that was passed uh, in 2019, they had to have a few special warrants just to make sure that like there was adequate funding for like the civil service and, and that sort of thing. So, mm. um, yeah, 
other than that, I think I think I think the timing of it was okay. Um, the real challenge, I think, is more just like the you know what's going to be in the federal budget kind of thing. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, for sure. And I think that's something that we've we've commonly heard is it's yeah it's, it's generally good to know kind of what money you're dealing with, mm -hmm. um, you know, as a civil service or as perhaps you know NGOs. Um, that access funding from the government kind of before they they do their budgeting and kind of know that as a as a moving forward basis and kind of leading into our next question is it's a big transition period i think not just for government but i think for kind of society as a whole and and government has continuously referred to this budget as a transition budget meaning that not only do we we want to kind of deal with some of the, uh, you know, financial concerns right now pertaining to the pandemic, but also, you know, how do we get to the other side? And especially as there's that vaccine rollout over the spring and summer, do you find that the government of PEI has achieved the goal of creating a budget that meets the needs of both right now, but as well in order to transition into the future? Well, not exactly, but I think it's just an impossible ask. Right. That's like, fair. like it's, it's, it's an ass sort of design for an opposition party in a, in a way. Right. Because, yeah, because like, I mean, yeah, like with, with uh, a limit in what's going to happen, uh, both in the immediate financial future of this province, you know, like the federal budget uh, and, and sort of long-term how this, you know, the, the late COVID period sort of, develops like it, it's it's impossible to sort of be you know kind of like here in the transition period but also setting up you know the yep. recovery of the new economy kind of thing mm. um it's it does have a lot of program spending um it does follow through with a lot of the pc platform planks i mean you have that small business tax cut to, down to one percent that's that was supposed to be something that initially in their platform they were projecting was by end of term. Mm. Um, you have little elements like the establishment of what appears to be a land bank program. You have kind mm. of a possible revamp of the healthcare system with these medical neighborhoods, uh, medical homes projects. So, and, and then you have the universal childcare pre-K uh, system. So, so yeah, uh, like. I don't know. Like, I think, again, it, it's it, it, it's a very progressive budget for a Tory budget. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you would find another Tory government that's sort of like, you know, per population probably is spending this much. Mm. Um, but is it meeting kind of the expectations of the time? That's a really tough one and possibly a bit of an impossible ask at the moment. Mm -hmm. So probably not, you know. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, now moving on to like kind of some specific areas that are talked about in the budget. Um, one of the things that folks had been looking forward to the most had been kind of the elaborations of the plans around universal pre-K and its implementation then. You know, what were you expecting to see in this particular area or what are you hearing on the ground that people had been waiting to hear on on this topic? And do you find that these expectations have been met? Well, I mean, I think the government was kind of clear before this budget dropped that they wanted to have the pre-K program roll out in September, which mm -hmm. which they are. I mean, it was originally supposed to roll out last September, but mm -hmm. but COVID. Um, I I think the the thing that I think I uh, am looking for, and that I think even people who are sort of really 
interested in the in childcare and PEIs is more so the specifics of kind of what the curriculum would look like. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I've heard some concerns that basically, you know, people people sort of would just be entering their children into kind of almost like a like an overly structured environment, like almost like school, but it's like you know for earlier earlier age children. Mm -hmm. So um, that much is not not quite clear, I think, of like what it will actually look like. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, the other other details, it's it's pretty clear that they're looking for more affordability. They're talking about uh, twenty five dollars a day. Um, uh, you know, opening up three hundred new spaces. They're of course increasing uh, the wages for early childhood educators, uh, and and again, sort of moving more of the childcare spaces into, I guess, the classification of early years centers, which is sort of the. Mm -hmm kind of the echelon that has the higher waged uh, PCE workers. Um, so yeah, I mean, those those parts, I think it's like hard to argue against necessarily, but I think, yeah, it's more the specifics of like, what's the curriculum gonna mm. look like? And like, what's for like a kid who's sort of developing at like age four, what's, what's that actually gonna, gonna look like? I mean, I know that the Greens will probably take a bit of attack of like, well, why is it only half day? And that's, that's not a bad point. You know, it, it's, it's universal half day pre-K for four-year-olds, mm -hmm. but you know, let's say if you're a working parent, like what are you supposed to do for the, the other half of the day? Um, mm -hmm. So again, those are, those are questions. Again, this was in the original platform. So they're kind of meeting a platform plank, but it's, yep. a, it is a question of whether it made sense to be a promise in the first place of a half day program. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, those are, those are kind of the questions that I have. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I think we'll expect to hear a lot of those same questions brought up in the House in terms of, you know, these initial points that were brought up in the platforms now being introduced, you know, kind of not following COVID, but following our initial year with COVID. And then, you know, does this kind of make sense or how can we evolve that? Um, mm -hmm. Another one of those examples is in mental health. And, and we saw recently in the news, Premier King speaking to um, walking back some of those initial um, commitments that were made in the PC platform. And, and that's been a big debate, not just in the spring setting, of course, but, um, you know, in the weeks leading up and as well in the last fall. Um, and government has continued to stay again and again that mental health is a priority. Um, do you find that this budget announcement last week elaborates on the plans that were mentioned in the throne speech uh, and, and kind of compares to that? Or do you feel that there's perhaps details missing that we're still looking for? Well, it's 100% details missing. Um, like, does it expand on on the state of the province speech or the throne speech? Sure. I mean, it, it actually added a, a safe consumption site, which nobody had mentioned before, which is an interesting development. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, I think, um, the, I, I don't know how, like, I don't know how you can argue against it. Like, it does seem like it's a bit of a weak spot in, in the budget. Like, the, the progressive conservatives campaigned on a platform of addressing mental health of islanders. And here we are two years later, um, we're dealing with the nursing shortage at QEH. There's a bit of an uncertainty around the psychiatric urgent care clinics. We've had uh, multiple Islanders who've experienced, um, I guess, sort of what they view as insensitive treatment within uh, the QEH when they go to the emergency room to seek mental health care. We've got unit nine's not even open back up fully. It's sort of still at partial capacity. 
um, people people very much felt that like mental health was sort of treated as a bit of an afterthought in the COVID-19 epidemic. And we might well have, once the data fully comes in, um, on the addiction side, uh, you know, more more fatalities from, um, uh, you know, like uh, uh, opioids than we have in any previous years since they started counting. Now that's pure speculation on my point, uh, from my perspective, but it's not outside of the realm of possibilities. Um, so yeah, what we have in this budget is um, a commitment to a PEI center for mental well-being. Uh, it's about a three million dollar commitment. Um, that appears to be not an actual physical center. Uh, it is a collection of nonprofits, which will be sort of brought together. Mm. Um, we of course have the the safe consumption site, which will be under the direction of the CPHO. Uh, not exactly a hard timeline on that, as you no. had sort of for other initiatives mm. like Universal Pre. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's, uh, I mean, what can you say? Like, like, yeah, like it, it sort of does really go back to some of the more fundamental, uh, issues that we face in the healthcare system and PEI. I mean, it's, 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 uh, retention, recruitment, retention, uh, both of doctors, nurses, uh, it's sort of stigma, it's silos, uh, and, those are sort of the, the sort of background details that are still there. Yeah. Um, and I don't think they're quite fully addressed in this budget. Um, and that's 100% going to be something that the, the opposition is really going to hold on to and mm -hmm. probably push pretty hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, what we're seeing more and more right now is everyone's saying this, like there's a second pandemic going on and it's a pandemic mm -hmm. of mental health crisis where, you know, people are more isolated. So as, as you mentioned, the number of uh, cases related to opioid overdoses are going up. Uh, so, you know, these have been pre prevalent issues that have been around for a while. Now, another issue that has been around for a while, but we haven't been talking about as much over the last year has been climate change. Um, mm -hmm. Time we've seen, you know, in the spring sitting, a relatively new area of priority that that has emerged has been around clean technology. Um, the budget had an entire section devoted to it. The significant investments that have been kind of uh, pointed out for that. Now, a lot of focus under this priority, however, um, aside from working with post-secondary institutions, places a lot of emphasis on incentivizing the private sector as opposed to working within the public sector. Do you think, you know? there's any way around doing that? Is there any way of working within the public sector? Or, you know, did they have no choice but to work with the private sector? And what would be some advantages or downfalls of this approach? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, and you, yeah, you're right. I mean, it does, it does seem to have a fair bit of a focus on the private sector. I mean, the biggest money item is this $50 million pot of loan money, essentially for clean, clean tech companies. Mm. Um, I mean, how could it how could it look differently? I mean, I mean, uh, again, this is sort of a a narrative the Greens are pushing is sort of more of a focus on kind of like the green energy future of PEI. But the other part of this that's not really not really part of the strategy is um, just post secondary education, right? Like, so there is a bit of a part of this initiative, uh, like uh, the creation of I think it's called the PEI Energy Academy. Um, you know, uh, but again, like none of these details are, are really, really fleshed out. You know, we're sort of in a period where we haven't actually had debate 
on the floor of the legislature on, on the specifics of it. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, the clean tech stuff, I, I, I find it actually kind of like on the whole, like I, I, I find it hard to kind of totally critique the idea of like, okay, more money into research and development into clean tech. Oh, for sure. Okay. Absolutely. You know, but like, but clean tech is not the same thing as alternative energy. And it's mm -hmm. not the same thing as, mm. you know, like the way it's actually defined kind of includes soil health. It includes agricultural uh, uses. So again, it's sort of a bit of an amorphous concept without a whole lot of details behind it at this point. Mm -hmm. um, and again, like post-secondary education is sort of, you know, uh, part of the picture, but like, for example, you're not seeing an increase in the number of seats for trades programs or for people mm -hmm. who know how to say, build clean tech or build, yeah. you know, like windmills, you're, you're not seeing a, you know, a big, uh, seat increase for engineers of a certain degree, certain type in UPEI. So, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things is like, like, I feel a little bit like a jerk. Uh, criticizing it because it's like clearly before <laughs> they've actually rolled out the details but I'm a reporter and I guess when I don't have the details I guess I sort of say where are the details so mm -hmm. you know kind of the name of the game I guess <laughs> yeah yeah exactly it's mm -hmm. it's such a yeah it's a bit of a cop out but mm -hmm. is what it is that's kind of the fun part now with the new legislative schedule we have this mm -hmm. this yeah, this week off. Planning break week thing <laughs> that, you know, all the reporters get to have this cop out. So it's, it's okay. You're not the only mm -hmm. one. I kid. Mm -hmm. I joke. Just uh, <laughs> as a follow up to that last point, Stu, you were talking a lot about post-secondary. And, you know, obviously that's somewhere where Sweta and I have spent a lot of our, um, our time and energy in. Do you think that there is a missed opportunity with looping in institutions such as Holland College, Collège de Lille, and UPEI into this conversation more than they perhaps have been in terms of the details that we do have right now? Yes, but that's a complicated answer. Uh, and, and I think the, like what it really, I think, goes to part of it is trades, right? Like a lot, it's, it's, it's a popular thing, I think, for a lot of conservative leading governments to sort of encourage the use of people of, of like trades programs when it comes to like green jobs. Um, but um, I think it's known, uh, you know, at least in the construction sector that Holland College and people within the construction sector don't necessarily see eye to eye. So there isn't necessarily this sort of collaboration, you know, from the industry with the Holland College trades programs. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I haven't seen uh, the provincial government from the last uh, previous government to this one actually sort of step in and sort of do the collaborative thing and figure out exactly why that is. Um, but I think that's part of it is like, like it, it makes perfect sense for a government that is interested in promoting green jobs, uh, like retrofits of, of aging buildings, making them more energy efficient to invest heavily in trades seats in, in seats and trades program, but the industry does not seem to, you know, like that doesn't seem to jive very well. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, like that's, I guess that's, that's the first thing I think it's not necessarily UPEI. I think of, I think more of why is Holland never part of the discussion when we're talking about mm -hmm. PEI's green future or of green jobs or green tech or all the, all these kinds of things. Like we have a shortage in the trades industry like For everybody sure. knows it people are retiring 
Um, so we, we need more tradespeople. The natural thing would be to mm-hmm. vastly increase the number of seats in trades training programs and then do whatever you can to encourage people to go into those, uh, mm-hmm. those sectors. But that never seems to be part of the discussion. And this is kind of a recurring trend we see, you know, not just when talking about green tech or climate change. It seems oftentimes, you know, I love research, but there's always such an emphasis on the research part of it and not so much on the on the ground implementation part of it. And you're absolutely right. That's a really big missed opportunity there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's always strange. Uh, I, I mean, I feel like I've been asking questions about this, like for literally three years. And <laughs> it's always just kind of like, like, uh, you know, the question is always, are you going to increase the number of trade seats at Holland College? And the answer is always like, like, no, maybe, you know, it's a very vague answer. Mm-hmm. But I think I think I really do think it just goes back to the weirdness between the industry and Holland College. And I, I don't have a firm grasp of exactly where that comes from and exactly why. But there's there's something there that's just not, you know, not real together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just kind of on that piece too, like the role of, of government when it comes to relationships with post-secondary institutions and industry is to kind of be that bridge, right? Like that's, that's their job. You and, you know, that you can achieve that in a number of different ways. Um, and one that kind of comes to mind is kind of, like you said, increasing the amount of seats, but also why are there shortages in the first place and what are the barriers also to entry even if there are more seats um and and definitely have a bias there in terms of access to post-secondary but you know um a trades program for example on a two-year program in comparison to say you know a four-year degree at upei and the faculty of sustainable design engineering the upfront costs for a trade student are actually more right so um how can the provincial government helps students um, address those kind of upfront costs in order to increase that accessibility and and address kind of those gaps that exist right now um, in that sector and and also work with specifically Holland College and industry to to connect those recent grads who you know you said you've been reporting on this for three years there could have been you know two three sets of graduating classes in that time that mm-hmm. could be in the industry right now but perhaps we've we've had a missed opportunity there and kind of to your point um maybe looking to see more of that moving forward yeah I mean it's you know again I can I can be the peanut gallery and say this kind of thing but I guess part of the reason why it probably isn't a policy priority for government. It's not totally their fault. It's, I think, because the stakeholders are divided. Mm. Like there's, you know, differing opinions about that. Um, but I don't know. It's always seemed kind of obvious to me that you would start with the college level. So, mm-hmm. No, for sure. And I suspect, too, moving forward um, next week when the, the House opens back up, this will be a, a topic of conversation um, between government, opposition, and third party. What other arguments do you expect to hear, particularly from opposition or third party, to bring up in terms of criticisms or concerns pertaining to this budget? Uh, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> yeah, I th- well, I think the... I think one of the things that the liberals will definitely be bringing up is so, so yeah, Dennis, the, the way this sort of budget cycle started off in terms of the communication aspect was uh, this speech that Dennis King gave, like the, the, they call it the state of the province speech in which he 
made the point that like uh, it's not feasible for Islanders to all have a family doctor. Mm -hmm. And that is only a kind of argument you can make when you are 30 points ahead in opinion <laughs> polls. Um, but yeah, so the answer to that now is supposed to be this thing that they're now calling medical homes, medical neighborhoods, which was before called health hubs. And the idea is it's a sort of collaborative medical center with doctors, nurse practitioners, registered nurses, maybe other, other allied health professionals. And we know that there's going to be five of them. That's what are funded in this budget. We don't know where they're going to be. We don't know the actual communities. So what opposition is probably going to bring up is how does that work? Uh, who gets a family doctor and who doesn't? You know, how are you going to determine who's sort of like eligible for just being in the queue of this, you know, of these sort of collaborative health centers and who, you know, who gets to, who gets to sort of like come off the registry with a, a family doctor. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it, it's, it's, uh, it's fertile ground if you don't have the details, you know, when you're opposition. Um, and that's one of those things where it's like, there's a whole lot of details I don't have. So I imagine they'll, they'll definitely take advantage of that. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, Obviously, mental health, mental health will figure will figure pretty huge. Um, I don't know. Yeah, uh, I mean, aside from what issues have already been kind of focused on, I'm not I'm not exactly sure what else they'll they'll sort of take aim at for this budget. Mm -hmm. There's still enough issues for us to start a game of bingo on. So mm. you know, as we're watching over the next, <laughs> yeah, right, right. Listen to this episode <laughs> and say, okay, Stu said this. Bring this up. Check, check, check. Awesome. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we've touched on different priorities so far, and you've kind of answered this question before, but is there anything in this budget that you think is, has a particularly good emphasis on, or are there any other missed opportunities that you can identify? Um, I mean, I, you know, like, uh, I, I, I follow criticism and I change my mind all the time, but I am kind of encouraged that like they followed through on, on the childcare stuff. Like I thought that was like one of the strongest points of their, their uh, platform and they put it out. Mm -hmm. um uh i you know am interested in the clean tech section even though i'm grumpy about it um <laughs> but um yeah the another missed opportunity i think that i haven't touched on is like they they do have funding for, like there, there is an increase in the shelter rates for social assistance recipients um but the increases to social assistance overall are not as big as the last budget. And there's some funding for shelters, um, but overall I sort of felt like it was a little lacking for kind of anti-poverty programming. Um, so, you know, I'll be looking to see how that gets, I'm sure that'll be raised in the legislature. Um, like the Greens have practically made the housing issue, you know, kind of their branded issue in a lot of ways. Um, so yeah, I mean, that'll, that'll be there, but yeah, I mean, we're COVID, right? Like this is, this is sort of one of those periods where like, like poverty is just a lot more apparent now, especially for people who are kind of like in the, the working poor. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, you can talk all, you can talk all you want about how you're working with the federal government to try and put a, in place a basic income, but while that, that's getting worked out, you, you, uh, you do need to put in place the, the programs today. Um, mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. 
Well, we have so much to look forward to, I guess, yeah. next week. And it'll uh, be good. I mean, I think it's going to yeah. be a good session overall. Like, I mean, there's a lot of there's meaty stuff there. Like, I actually do think government has some good pieces of legislation that are coming down the tubes as well. So, yeah, you know. yeah. Absolutely. No, it's it's been a good session so far. And, and I think, too, it'll be nice now with this week in the middle to provide folks an opportunity to rest up a little bit and also be able to kind of get a second wind and mm -hmm. go back in there and really go through the kind of fine tooth comb of the budget, which um, I'm excited to watch because mm -hmm. we haven't had that. And I think and obviously, you know, this as, as someone that kind of watches it on an hour by hour basis as the days go on in the legislative sittings people get tired mm -hmm. people get frustrated um a lot, a lot of things can transpire so it'll be interesting now that people have had the opportunity to rest up and especially in comparison to last year's spring sitting which felt like it lasted forever it um, did last forever <laughs> <laughs> you're well aware of that <laughs> yeah yeah that was a long one yeah you're right like this is sort of the period where there's actual like stakes i mean it's a like once it gets to a vote, it's a confidence motion, right? So for sure, there's always the possibility the government could fall. Mm -hmm. But yeah, this is a weird sitting so far because like I felt like the first week it was like mostly opposition time, and they were mostly debating non-binding motions. Mm -hmm. And then this, like last week, we sort of got into like actual pieces of legislation and like kind of some more concrete things. So um, yeah, I mean, I'm hoping hoping it kind of stays in that in that vein mm -hmm. it has yeah. certainly been entertaining to watch to say the least yeah <laughs> you think so though like i sort of like i mean you know we're, we're we're probably policy nerds or whatever but like you think like what normal people actually actually watch this stuff and are entertained i i just remember because um we were in the stakeholder lockup which is you know separate from the media lockup mm. and at one point there weren't many of us but at one point uh we put the ledge on because we're waiting for the budget address to come on so we could leave and i don't see i don't think i've ever heard like six people laugh so much over the period of q oh, really? that was going on i i don't think i've ever <laughs> seen the crew so engaged and i don't know if everyone there was necessarily you know a policy nerd but it makes for good tv Mm -hmm. Okay, good to know. All right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I lose I lose touch basically just because I watch the question period every day. So, mm -hmm. so I can't tell. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a, uh, it's it's uh Yeah, I don't know. I remember the last week being pretty strong for the most part. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think uh, the highlight of the last week for me, and to your questions, Stu, is this interesting for folks? I don't think I've ever heard anyone on the floor of the Legislative Assembly of any province propose the selling of a rooster by their daughter. <laughs> um, of course, <laughs> Agriculture Minister and Minister of Justice uh, Boyce Thompson was speaking to that. And um, I, I was kind of blown away, to be honest. I was kind of in shock. And yeah, I thought that was very unique. So only in PEI. And I think he mentioned that too when he started. He was like, now this story is, you know, only in PEI and everyone started laughing. But yeah. It's very well, yeah, there was, there was, I guess, the uh, the comparison of a standing committee to uh, Maggie Simpson. Uh, that was kind of a high point. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're looking forward to next week and uh, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Hopefully there'll be some more uh, more good stories like that.
We're mm-hmm. going to transition to the more serious part right. of our podcast. Do as you know, every week we have a beer panel. Now, this has taken on a whole life of its own. We've had people recommend beers, which is great because that's the name of the panel. But we've also had people recommend different types of drinks, alcoholic, non-alcoholic, um, different activities to participate in, um, you know, in various mm-hmm. parts of the island, um, or their favorite dessert and where to get it. So as you are our special guest, we'll let you go first and feel free to recommend anything you would like to listeners, where to find it and why you like it. Okay. So the question is, Beer slash things that I like in PEI. Okay. Yeah. Uh, all right. Or even I'll start. BC. Oh, BC, but I, we can't go to BC now. It's a it's illegal. <laughs> well, it's not illegal, but like. Uh, okay, so I'll start with I'll start with the beer selection. We're in this sort of weird time where we're between winter and spring. Mm. So I'll, I'll give you two recommendations. Uh, the winter selection is the Painted Black Porter from Bogside mm. down in Montague, which is a very tasty porter. Um, yeah, it's just it's just a good good winter you know winter sipping beer. Uh, but if you if you're feeling a little bit more spring, uh, I'm super stoked that uh, Copper Bottom has the Flor Pilsner. Uh, this was one of my pandemic uh, hobbies was sort of like trying every lager produced by a PEI <laughs> microbrew uh, because I was bored. Um, but yeah, it, it definitely came out on top then. And then like it, there was sort of a period over last summer where it just was nowhere to be found because they ran out of it so quickly. So happy to see it in stock. You find it pretty much anywhere. Good, easy sipping. Uh, Pilsner, not too bitter, real good. Happy it's there. What do I recommend? Um, I'll, uh, what do you do in Montague? Um, there's kind of the hot sauce store, like in in uh, Montague. While mm. while I'm talking about Montague, I kind of recommend a visit there because they just have like this sort of like hot sauce bar <laughs> that you can kind of drive. Mm-hmm. Um, Maritime Madness. That's that's what it is. So yeah, your your full day of Montague is Blackside Brewery, Copper Bottom, and then a quick stop in uh, Maritime Madness. Wow, that sounds like a, like a road trip idea if our listeners are looking for something to do in Montague. So definitely looking go. forward to that. Um, my recommendations for today, I think the only beer I've drank since our last episode has been Vic Park. And that was with you, Emma, mm-hmm. at the Sugar Shack when we were watching Shane Pendergast at oh, Merchant yeah. Man. Um, but aside from, and I feel like Vic Park has been recommended a number of times on the show already by either you or me. So True. I think these days... I've been drinking just Tidal Bay a couple times a week after work. So just unwind and, you know, sit back and wait for the Atlantic bubble to open, which we chatted about before the start of this episode. So I think that's going to be my two for today. Just Vic Park and Tidal Bay. Nice. Tidal Bay, I'm not familiar with that sort of, where's that from? It's a Nova Scotia white wine. Oh, it's wine. Sorry. Okay. Wow. Very cool. Very, very cool. That's good to know. And you can get that at the liquor store. store? Yep. Okay. Absolutely. Good to know. Good to know. Brig, I like this idea of a winter summer recommendation. So for my winter recommendation, I'm going to do the Caesar 
from Upstreet. Now, mm. you might be thinking, Upstreet, don't they just do beer? Well, at one of my favorite places, Craft Beer Corner, they do Caesars. I forget what they're called. There's, a, I think there's a specific name with them. Sweta might know. It's the Rooney Caesar. Rooney Caesar. Thank you. Thank you. And I love that name too. Um, but yeah, their Caesars are so good because they put beet juice in them. So it makes it a little bit huh. sweet. Um, if you like kind of like a sweet and salty and spicy type drink. Um, right. Very good. Very, very good. Definitely one of my favorites on PEI. So that's my winter recommendation. Um, for the spring, what have I had recently? Um, I would probably recommend the Libra again. Um, it's the non-alcoholic beer also from oh, yeah, right, right, right. Uh, they launched that back in, I think late fall going into the holiday season. And anyways, it's great. It's definitely comparable to like their commons or like, um, a Corona, just kind of really, really light. Um, but it's great. Just have it cold. And, um, if you want to have beer without the alcohol and, um, feel a little bit light, it's really good. So that would be the one I would recommend. And as well, I'm going to go with the Montague re recommendation. I would also recommend the Lucky Bean Cafe right beside oh, yeah. Maritime of Madness. Right, and it's right, right. so delicious. Um, they're quite good. They're, they're a staple cafe uh, in Kings County, and they've actually expanded. So they're opening up in Stratford as well, which is exciting. Um, I'm not sure if they have opened already or if they're in the development phase. But yeah, they're fabulous. Really like that crew. Beet juice is, I'm just going to add, beet juice is very much underrated. Mm. Um, and I realized this after I moved away from home because when I lived back home, my mother would get me to drink beet juice every day and I didn't appreciate it as a teenager. I do appreciate it now. <laughs> They're $6 uh, all day. And um, we'll recommend to Babita, Sweda's mom to uh -huh. if she ever comes a pi when she comes a pi that uh sweda has been following her recommendation to drink beet juice and even has it in a caesar so she'll try that oh, <laughs> yep perfect and i think that's all the time that we have for today folks thank you so much for joining us for this conversation Stu. i think we've talked about a lot of things not just the budget and it has been really cool so thank you so much mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah thanks guys it was fun it was wonderful to see you again, Stu, and, and best of luck with all of your hard work moving forward. For sure. All right. Thanks, guys. Cool. See ya. And that's all the time that we have for today, folks. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you so much to Stu for giving us his time and sharing his thoughts with us. Now, the talented Mr. Shane Pendergast, who is the artist of our opening and closing music, Gaspazy. He's got a couple shows coming up. The first one that we'll mention, and we've mentioned it a couple times now, is the Second Wind album launch, and that's at the Trailside Music Hall, Tuesday, March 23rd from 8 to 10 p.m. Now, this show is sold out, so you can't get tickets anymore, but we do recommend that you folks check out his album on Apple Music or Spotify or other areas as this album is now excitedly launching. Or if you're one of those people who's always hooked to their computers, Keep refreshing the Eventbrite website in the hopes that something shows up. Shane's next show is on March 26th, 2021, and it's the 2021 Credit Union Music PEI Week presents Digging Deep Roots. 
This is going to be at the Guild from 7.30 to 9.30 p.m. As well, Shane has a live performance coming up at the Trackety Community Center. That's Friday, April 30th, 2021, 7.30 to 9.30 p.m. Stay warm and stay safe, everyone. This has been Dialogue.